Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his uh, guidance and direction. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, for it is in your word that you have illuminated us to the truth of reality as you have created it. Only through your word are we able to accurately understand and interpret all of the experiences that we have in life and all of the uh, things that surround us and our circumstances. It is because you have created all things, and so only as we understand them to be that which you have created can we truly understand reality as it is. And the only way to understand history and what you are doing in history is to study your word. And as we are part of history in our individual Christian lives, uh, we have a role to play, an important role to play. And that role is uh, often unseen, and yet nevertheless it is crucial and important for each one of us in terms of our own spiritual life has an impact in relation to the overall spiritual conflict that we refer to as the angelic conflict or spiritual warfare. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, as we reflect upon uh, these events that took place several thousand years ago, may we come to understand that they, even though they are, or they were a long time ago, they have significance and relevance for us today and carry with them a challenge for each of us in terms of our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to First Kings or Second Kings, rather, chapter six. Second Kings, chapter six, verses. Uh, we'll begin at verse eight. Second Kings, six, verse eight. As most of you know, I left to go to Kiev about a little over two weeks ago, and I go over there every year to teach at the Word of God Bible. A college which Jim Meyer started about nine or ten years ago. This was my ninth trip over there. And he always has about 12 to 15 students, runs them through a pretty rigorous curriculum that lasts for two years, goes through throughout the year, teaching them Greek and Hebrew theology. Uh, all, all of us who come over from America to teach different modules all teach through a translator. And we've gotten everything down to where it works pretty well, uh, pretty well now. And so he had another good group of students this year. And this year I taught on the subject of dispensations and covenants. So I was teaching a class or course on dispensationalism, uh, which is very important. And then next year I, I cycle into, uh, rewards and judgment. So those are the two classes I teach and I just rotate every year, so we've got everything translated, everything done, so it, it runs pretty smoothly now, and uh, then I always have the opportunity to teach at the church on Sundays while I'm there and Wednesday nights, and sometimes a few other things come along uh, here or there, and uh, gives me an opportunity to minister. Sometimes I go, I've gone to Jatomer. I didn't this year. I probably will next year where Eager uh, Smolyar and his wife are, and they'll be coming here in March for the uh, pastors' conference, so they'll be here for the first two weeks of March, and that'll be a great opportunity for them and for you to uh, meet Eager and his wife. Julia has never been to uh, America before, so that's always exciting to uh, see someone come over here and become acquainted with all kinds of things. I kid Eager all the time because I introduced him to 
Bex Prime and Shipley Donuts. And he doesn't want to come here for spiritual things. He just wants to come here to go to get a donut and a hamburger. All right, we are in First uh, Kings chapter six. Now, there's some very our Second Kings chapter six, very interesting things that have been going on in these chapters, starting in chapter two with the transition from the ministry of Elijah, who is the more well-known of the two prophets, even though through the ministry of Elisha, there were many more miracles performed, and in Elisha's ministry. There are some unusual miracles that have taken place, and as we look, we have looked at them, we've seen that some of these uh, seem rather odd when we first go through them because there's no, there's no specific statement at the end of some of these, uh, the, at the end of these episodes that really focus us on, on why this episode is in the scripture. And so that forces us to stop and think. Uh, a little bit more deeply and profoundly about why is it that God is including these events in the narrative of Second Kings. Why is it important to learn these things? And not only that, why was it important for Israel to have these types of things happen in their history? And what is it that God is trying to communicate to the Israelites in that time of their history, and if we don't really understand that, then when it comes to taking these episodes and applying them over to the church age and to our spiritual life, we can uh, run aground on all sorts of uh, various problems. So it's important to focus on uh, how these string together, and the unifying element in each of these episodes is the grace of God towards a rebellious. People, God is extending his grace to the northern kingdom of Israel because they are out of fellowship as a nation. I'm not talking about individual spiritual life, but as a nation, they are uh, disobedient to God and they have uh, rejected him and they have gone into idolatry. And this has been going on now for some uh, 70 years or so ever since the split of the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom and the idolatry that was first introduced by Jeroboam the first which we studied back in first our yeah first kings chapter 12 uh 12 13 in that area now as a background for understanding what happens in second kings 6 uh starting in verse 8 i want to remind you of what jesus taught in the sermon on the mount Now, before I quote these verses, let me remind you what the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was. Very few people accurately interpret the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of discussion on that. But fundamentally, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus confronting the Pharisees with their pseudo-righteousness based on a legalistic, superficial interpretation of the Mosaic Law that if people just did certain overt activities, that that would make them righteous. And so Jesus is challenging their whole concept of righteousness. And the central passage, you might say, of the Sermon on the Mount was, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And see, that's the point, is that in their culture, they thought the the perfect example of a righteous person was a Pharisee. Now, we look at the Pharisees through the lens of Jesus' teaching. So we look at them as being superficial and hypocrites. But in their culture, there was nobody more moral, nobody more overtly religious, no one more involved in the worship of the temple and what appeared to be the worship of God than a Pharisee. So if someone came along and said that these uh, these religious, moral people who seem to have the very best uh, of human righteousness, that if their righteousness wasn't good enough for God and you had to have greater righteousness, then how in the world could any of us ever be approved by God? So the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus gave his correct interpretation 
of the Mosaic law and the righteousness required by the Mosaic law in contrast to the interpretation of the Pharisees. And in Matthew 5:43 and following, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, Jesus' point here is to illustrate grace, that in the life of the believer, grace should be a characteristic And as the individual believer is dealing with people who may spitefully uh, use you, people who may abuse you, people who may uh, not have respect for you as an individual, people who may antagonize you, that we are to uh, love our enemies even as we love those who are our friends and who support us. And that is grace. And this is ultimately depicted at the cross because God loved those who were hostile to him so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for them. So as believers, we are to uh, emulate the love of God for those who are hostile to us, and that is uh, grace orientation. Now, that is the background theme that's being illustrated in a number of these episodes in Second Kings. So we come to our next episode in Second Kings chapter 6, verse 8, and it has to do with a military conflict that is taking place between the Arameans to the north, which is what we would call today roughly the area of modern Syria and Lebanon, and the northern kingdom of Israel. To understand what is going on here in terms of the historical context, we have to take a a uh, few minutes to just reflect upon uh, the relationship of Israel to God and what the issues were there so that we can have a proper and correct understanding of these events. Since the time of Solomon, the son of David, one of the greatest kings that Israel had, there had existed a state of hostility between the Aramean nation to the, mo- to the north that had its capital in Damascus and the... Uh, the Jews to the south, not any different from what we have today. Matter of fact, I saw uh, an article on the Depka file yesterday evening stating that the Syrians had called up their uh, reserve troops in order to uh, send them down onto the Golan Heights in anticipation of some sort of uh, fabricated attack by the Israelis. It's just political uh, maneuvering, but this kind of thing is still happening today that was happening some um, 3,000 years ago. So a state of hostility had existed between the Arameans in the north and especially the northern kingdom of Israel. Following the division of Israel into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, that hostility intensified so that by the time of Elijah, but specifically Elisha, military hostilities with the northern kingdom had become a regular factor in the life of the citizens in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, to understand why this is so, why God is allowing this constant uh, attacking, attack by the Syrians, we need to put this within the framework of the Mosaic Law. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we see the description of Solomon's fall into idolatry. As he succumbed to the influence of all of his foreign wives, he began to uh, compromise on his love for Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he began to uh, allow for the construction of various temples and to the false gods of his wives, to the point that he uh, was he actually built temples to Chemosh and to Molech and became involved himself in idolatry. Now we have to understand the significance of idolatry in Israel in light of the Mosaic Law. 
the Mosaic Law has a prelude to it, much like we have a prelude to our Constitution that summarizes some of the foundational principles. The Mosaic Law had a prelude to it that summarizes the underlying principles of the Mosaic Law, and that is known as the Ten Commandments. And at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, we have these six verses that focus on the, the mandate that God gave the nation to have exclusive loyalty and allegiance to him. Begins in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. He states, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice how he defines himself again and again as the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. We saw that in our psalm reading earlier this morning. He is the God who redeemed them as a nation, the God who brought them out of slavery, out of the house of bondage. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says again, wait a minute, I got a duplication in there, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Uh, let's skip down to verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. The foundational mandate of the Mosaic Law is complete, total, unadulterated allegiance to God. No worshiping of other gods, no worshiping or construction of idols, such that what this meant was when idolatry occurred, it was not just a an act of spiritual infidelity, it was a a act of treason against the true king of Israel who is God. So it has political as well as religious uh, significance. As God gave them the law, he also identified in the law that if there was a violation of the Mosaic law by the nation, then God would bring certain devastating consequences upon that nation. And that included military conquest. We see this laid out in Leviticus chapter 26. There are five stages of increasing intensity of, of divine discipline on the nation for their disobedience. And I've just summarized and picked out some key verses here to emphasize this military aspect. In uh, Leviticus 26:17, in the first cycle of discipline, this, God made the statement, I will set my face against you, and you will be defeated by your enemies. In verse 25, in the uh, third cycle of discipline, God said, I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant when you are gathered together within your cities. Uh, when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. And then beginning in verse uh, 31 down through 33, we have the military de- ultimate military defeat in the fifth stage of discipline where God said that not only would he destroy their cities, but they would be taken captive and the foreign invader would remove them from the land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land that he promised would be theirs in perpetuity. And so this is the framework for understanding what happens in in all of these books that follow the Mosaic Law, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. You can't understand the rest of the Old Testament if you don't understand Leviticus 26 because the rest of the Old Testament is either the outworking of the blessing or the cursing, the judgments on Israel, depending on whether they were obedient or disobedient uh, to God. So when Solomon... When Solomon succumbed to idolatry, God finally announced that judgment on Solomon in 1 Kings 11, verse 12, and he told Solomon that he would take the kingdom 
uh, from him, not in his lifetime, but from his son, and it would be torn in two, and the northern ten tribes would be one nation, and then the southern two tribes would remain as one nation, not because of Solomon, but because of the covenant that God had made with Solomon's father, uh, King David, that there would always be a descendant of King David on the throne, on the throne of Judah. So, with that, Solomon began to experience the collapse of his uh, great empire, time of tremendous peace and prosperity that was that God had given him because of his uh, obedience to God when he was young. And what we read in the rest of First King, uh, Kings 11 is that God began to raise up various external enemies as well as uh, internal opposition. And one of those external enemies that God raised up at that time involved the rise of this new entity of Aramea to the north that would be centered in Damascus. And there's the mention of a rebel named Ritzon, the son of Eliadah, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, and he established his own kingdom in Damascus. And it is that kingdom that begins to grow and develop. Now, he is he fled from his king, who was named Hadad Itzer. It's made up of two words in the uh, Aramaic. Hadad was the name of one of the gods in the Aramean pantheon. He's the counterpart to Baal. And he was the god of fertility and the god of thunder and lightning. It's the same god, just a different, uh, just a different name. And the ending on that name, Atzer, is the same word that you find over in Genesis chapter two, when God told Adam that it was not good for man to be alone, but he needed to make an Atzer, a to help him, an assistant, a helper. And so the word, the Hebrew word and the Aramaic word Atzer have to do with uh, bringing help or assistance. So Hadadezer's name means, hey, Dad, is my, uh, is my helper. And this name, Hadad, which is the name of their God, becomes part of the title for the various kings that we find in the Aramaic Empire. And so when we get into the end of uh, First Kings and the beginning of Second Kings, we see uh, ben Hadad the first, and now Ben Hadad uh, the second, and so their names emphasize their devotion to their uh, to their God, and that would have been their uh, their throne name. Now, be, when when Solomon died, as we've studied, the kingdom was split in two. There was a tax revolt among the ten northern tribes because of the heavy taxation that was uh, had been imposed by Solomon and was going to be increased by his son Rehoboam. And when that split occurred and Jeroboam became the king of the northern ten tribes, uh, he decided that it wasn't a good idea for all of his citizens to be going down to Jerusalem uh, every two or three months for a national feast day to worship at the temple of Jerusalem. There was some sort of conflict of interest, and he wanted all of their uh, devotion to this new entity of the northern kingdom. And so he established two uh, centers of worship in the northern kingdom, one in the south near the border with, with uh, Judah at Bethel and one in the far north at the city of Dan. And he put a, a golden calf in each location and said, now this golden calf is the God who brought you out of Egypt. So see, he is setting apart a completely different religious system based on uh, on idolatry. So the northern kingdom went along with him. So they're in apostasy. And as they were in violation of the Mosaic law, God begins to uh, discipline that nation. And they had a history, as we have studied in, in First Kings, of political instability, one dynasty following upon another dynasty, and numerous... Uh, uh, war, wars and consequences, and one of those involved a war bet- with the southern kingdom uh, during the time when Asa was the king of Judah in the south and Baasha was the king in Israel, 
And Baasha began to fortify the border with Judah in preparation for an attack. Well, this obviously disturbed Asa, and he wanted to do something to distract Baasha, so he bribed uh, Ben-Hadad I up in, in Syria to invade from the north. And that would cause, cause Baasha to have to turn around and put all of his forces back up in the north in Dan in order to... Uh, protect the nation and get his focus off of Judah. So what we see here on the map, this area down here the, where the green meets the purple, that was the border between the northern and southern kingdom, and he was fortifying, Baasha was fortifying this area here, and uh, when when Ben-Hadad I came in, he actually captured most of this territory up here in the north that we see sticking out like a like a little finger. Now that area in the north is still an area of dispute today. Uh, in much of the fighting, there was a recent war, when was that, about three years ago, when the, there was an assault from the south down from the Gaza Strip, and then the, the um, um, also an attack by Hezbollah in the north. And so this area is constantly disputed, as well as this area over here on the East side of the Jordan, this is the area of the Golan Heights, all the way, well, mostly this area up here. Here's the Sea of Galilee. So this is the area of the Golan up here, and this is under uh, tremendous dispute. Israel's controlled it since the early 70s, but it's constantly a uh, constantly in play as the Syrians want to regain control. It'll give them the high ground, and they can uh, lob their artillery shells and mortars and everything across the Sea of Galilee into all of the uh, Jewish uh, cities on the on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's the setting. And the background here is that there's been this, this state of conflict that has been going on for some time between the northern kingdom of Israel and the Arameans, also referred to in some translations as, as the Syrians. Now, during following the... Uh, and that initial attack by Ben-Hadad when he took the northern part of the kingdom, that was around 880 B.C. From that point down through the time of Ahab, uh, Syria had dominance in that part of, of the northern kingdom. And even during the time of Ahab, there were conflicts. But then there was a, uh, during, in, in 1 Kings chapter 20, 21, we studied that there were two instances when the Syrians attacked from the north and they were defeated. God gave the northern kingdom a victory. But then a strange twist occurred a few years later in 853. This isn't recorded in Scripture. Ahab and Ben-Hadad entered into an alliance against the Assyrians who were coming in from the northeast and they were able to defeat Shalmaneser III at the Battle of Karkar on the Orontes in 853. And we know about that because it is commemorated in a uh, monolith that Shalmaneser erected. Even though he claimed victory, which he didn't have, he mentioned both Ben-Hadad and Ahab on that monolith. So we have a historical record of that battle. But following that, there was a falling out between Ben-Hadad and Ahab, and Ahab went to Jehoshaphat, the king in the south, to see if he would join him in an attack against the Syrians at Ramoth-Gilead. And that is when Ahab was killed. We studied that as we were closing out our study in 1 Kings. And ever since that defeat that the northern kingdom had from the Syrians at Ramoth-Gilead, there have been this, these consistent hit-and-run raids by the Syrians into the northern kingdom of Israel. And so that has led to this tremendous instability. All of that is God bringing judgment and discipline on the northern kingdom of Israel in light of these promises in the cycles of discipline. So to summarize this, what we've seen is that Israel, the northern kingdom, was in disobedience to God. They had violated the Mosaic law. They were worshiping false gods, which was an act of treason, as well as religious apostasy. And so as a nation, 
They were out of fellowship and in rebellion towards God. Individually, there are very few who were even saved, but nationally, there's a corporate uh, representation there as a nation. They're in covenant with God, which pictures them as being uh, redeemed by God as a nation. So that has an analogy to us as, as a nation. They are analogous to us as individuals. As a nation, they were viewed as saved, but they're out of fellowship. They're in discipline. Nevertheless, what we see is that God is continuing to initiate and to be kind to them and initiate toward them so that they would return to him. Even though they are in discipline, he is continuing to send his messengers, Elijah and Elisha, to the northern kingdom, even though they have completely rejected him. Now, this is a demonstration of God's grace. It's a demonstration of loving your enemies. Israel is at enmity with God and is a spiritual enemy of God, and yet God is demonstrating his love to them by sending uh, Elijah and Elisha. Now, this has two applications for us that are probably pretty clear to many of you already. First of all, it has an application in relation to salvation. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is a, an analogy between Israel as being an enemy of God and God continuing to send a message of grace through the prophets to them and our salvation. We, every human being, is born spiritually dead and at enmity with God, hostile to God. But nevertheless, God, in his showing his unconditional love, sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the earth to die on the cross for our sins and to pay the penalty for sin. So the first area of application is it helps us to understand God's grace in salvation. Second, it helps us to understand God's grace toward us in our spiritual life. We often go through times in our spiritual life where we are in rebellion against God. When we are like the northern kingdom of Israel, that we have succumbed to the idols in our lives that are not idols made of uh, wood or stone or metal, but they're the idols of our circumstances, the idols of the details of our life, where the details of our life are more important to us than our relationship to God. We spend more time uh, worshiping at the idols of success, worshiping at the idols of uh, money or material things, worshiping at the idols of sex or social status or prosperity or whatever it may be, just like the ancient Israelites did. But God constantly works in us because, as believers by the Holy Spirit in order to bring us back to himself, and that includes divine discipline and punishment. Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 states, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, that is, as to believers? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged, when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. And that word has to do with whipping uh, every son whom he receives. And so even though we're out of fellowship and under divine discipline, we are still the recipients of God's grace. On the one hand, he is disciplining us and chastening us in love and in justice. And at the same time, he is always working to pull us back to cause us to turn back to him, to confess our sins, and to return in fellowship. That is the solution whenever we are out of fellowship, is to confess our sins to God, and who is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can recover. There's no circumstance or situation in our life, no level of rebellion we can achieve that as long as we are still alive prevents us from turning back to God and responding to his grace overtures to us so that we can be restored to fellowship and recover from the effects of all of that sin and carnality in our life and begin to move forward. And that is what is being pictured here in terms of Israel's relationship to God. 
as we go through this episode, what I want you to think of is that God's treatment of the enemies of Israel, the Syrians, is to teach something to Israel about God's grace towards them. Just as the Arameans or Syrians were the enemies of the northern kingdom, so Israel was the, had become the enemy of God. And what God is doing in his grace by uh, showing his grace in this episode to the Syrians and being kind to them at the end and treating them the way he does is to illustrate to the northern kingdom that if they would return to him, then he would also treat them and love and grace and kindness. So let's look at the situation. It's a fairly simple circumstance that's described in the first three verses, verses 8 through 10. The king of Syria, this, uh, it's interesting, the names of the kings aren't mentioned. The only person named is Elisha, and that's because we are to focus on the prophet as the solution to the problem. The prophet is the personification of the word of God, and by way of application, that means for us that it is the word of God that provides us with the solution to the problems of life. So the problem that's faced here initially by the king of Syria, by Ben-Hadad, is that as he's making war with Israel, and he sits in the private uh, council chambers with his chief of staff and with his chief generals, uh, which would include, of course, Naaman the Syrian that we uh, studied back in chapter 5, they make their secret plans to attack Israel, but by the time they get ready to carry them out, the Israelites already know what's going to happen, and they have marshaled their troops to that particular area, and they are prepared for the attack. And so uh, the king of Syria begins to suspect that there is someone within his inner circle uh, who is a spy. So the first three verses, uh, verses 8 through 10, uh, describe the fact that God is still working in the southern kingdom, and even though God is allowing the Syrians to attack, God is still dealing with the northern kingdom in grace. He sent Elisha to them, and he tells Elisha of what the plans are of the enemy so that he can then inform uh, the king of Israel and they can be prepared uh, to resist the attacks from Syria. And so that teaches us the principle that even while we are under divine discipline, God is still extending his grace to us. But it also teaches us that God is our real protector. He is the one who is really the solution to all of the problems and issues in our life, not whatever it is we are putting in front of him. Life is not going to be a success because we have mastered certain psychological techniques. Life is not going to be a success uh, because we have managed to uh, develop certain uh, uh, psychological orientation or mastered certain techniques. Life is a success only if we have submitted to the authority of God and we are living according to his, uh, to his word. We have to learn to trust him above everything else. And so God is working to teach that principle in the northern kingdom. They have to learn to trust God and not their own resources. That's why it is the prophet of God who is the one who provides their solution. So let's just look briefly at a couple of promises that we have in the Old Testament that reinforce this. Psalm 40, verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust and does not respect the proud, uh, nor such as turn aside to lies. Trusting in God, not those who arrogantly put forth alternative solutions, alternative paths to happiness and meaning and success in life. Again, Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, we have the promise, It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in princes. And we're getting ready to enter into another election cycle. I know you didn't know that. And a lot of people are getting all excited because uh, Mr. Brown won up in uh, Massachusetts this last week and think that, oh, somehow things are going to turn around perhaps. Well, don't put your trust in princes or politicians of any stripe. 
Our hope is only in the Lord. He is the only solution, and we have to put our trust in him. And it's not that we shouldn't be involved in politics. We should. That's part of our life. That's part of our responsibility as citizens in the United States. But don't get things out of focus. Put your focus on the Word of God and not your hope in uh, mankind or in politicians or in people. Psalm 146, verse 3 says, Do not put your trust in princes nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. And then one of my favorite passages on this theme is in Jeremiah 17, 5 and following. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, just withered up with no production whatsoever. That's what the northern kingdom of Israel is like at this point that he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. But blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose hope is in Yahweh. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor nor will cease from yielding fruit. Two principles we see here. First of all, no matter what our circumstances may be, our only hope is in the Lord. Do not put your hope in education. Do not put your hope in success. Do not put your hope in being working for a strong company that somehow because you work for the company you work for that God is going to protect you in times of economic crisis. Do not put your hope in politicians, political parties, or political agendas. Our hope, our confidence is in the Lord and the Lord alone. The second principle is to recognize that God is always going to deal with you as a believer in grace. Even when we are in in rebellion against God, even when we are disobedient to him, even if we have years of disobedience, God is always reaching out to us in grace, giving us the opportunity to recover, to be restored to fellowship, and to move forward in our spiritual life. This is what he's doing in all of these episodes related to the northern kingdom of Israel, reaching out for recovery. Now, we come to another one of those uh, interesting little episodes. The king of Syria is informed that it is not some spy that is telling Elisha what is going on, but it is or telling the king of Israel what is going on, but it's the prophet of God. It's Elisha who's, uh, who's telling the king of Israel what the king of Syria's plans are. And so he's going to send one of his uh, divisions into the northern kingdom in order to capture Elisha and in order to prevent him from uh, giving away his secret plans. And so he seeks information as to where Elisha is, and he's told in verse 13 that he is in Dothan. Now, Dothan was a place where uh, uh, Joseph had had some dealings during his lifetime, so it has a background, historical background in Israel. It is located in the um, in the Jezreel Valley, about 12 miles north of the capital of the northern kingdom, which was in Samaria. And so the king of Syria sends uh, horses and chariots and a great army, sends a division down there to uh, capture Elisha. And Elisha is there with his servant, and in the morning when his servant gets up, he looks out, and there this, this village of Dothan is surrounded by this division of the Syrian army. And he is frightened. He is scared to death. And he runs to Elisha in panic. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Elisha shows what any believer focused on the Lord should, how he should respond, not in panic. He says, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with with them. You know, the problem that we have as believers living in our modern or postmodern era is that we do not think in terms of the spiritual arena that surrounds us. We are not always aware that as we 
are moving through life, we are shoving our way through crowds of angels. That as we sit here in this meeting room at our morning worship service, we are surrounded by angels who are witnessing and observing everything that we do. We, we operate. You know, on one level, we believe, yes, we walk by faith and not by sight, but we let our thinking be dominated so much by the empirical. What we see is that which is real. So we are functional empiricists, and we don't think in terms of the reality of the angelic conflict that surrounds us. Now, we know the doctrine, and we understand that the angels are watching everything that we do, but we think somehow they're watching from way out there at the end of the galaxy or the end of the universe somewhere and not immediately in the room observing us. And too often we are like the servant of Elisha, and we don't have our eyes opened by the truth of Scripture. And so Elisha prays, and this is important to watch this uh, theme of, of sight here. Elisha is going to pray for his servant's eyes to be opened, and then he's going to pray for the Syrian's eyes to be closed. And we see this enlightenment that comes from spiritual truth. So verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opens the eyes of his servant, and he looks out, and he not only sees this this division that has surrounded the village, but he sees that there's a hundred times more angels from God that are surrounding the troops of the Syrians. And so suddenly he realizes that he's not outnumbered, but those poor Syrians are outnumbered by the forces of God. And that reality wasn't something that was true just for Elisha at that time in history. That is a reality that is uh, true just as much for each of us today. Now, remember, in the New Testament, Paul said that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. We have to understand that reality is what God's Word says it is. Reality is not what we perceive with our senses. And just because we cannot perceive the armies of angels that surround us, we can't perceive the guardian angels that we have, we cannot perceive the way they protect us, does not mean it is any less than true. And so Elisha has uh, the eyes of his servant open, but then he prays that the Syrians' eyes would be closed. And in verse 18, he prays that God would uh, make them blind. I think it's legitimate. We can pray that uh, certain people can have their eyes blinded to the truth for various other reasons even today. So they're struck with a real physical blindness, though, here. And now Elisha has to take care of them. Now, here, isn't this interesting? They're sent to be to capture Elisha. But he ends up turning the tables on them, and they're his captives. And he is now going to take them to the capital city, to Samaria, some 12 miles away. And he tells them, he says, look, this is not the, the way. You're not at the right place. The man you're looking for is in, in, in Samaria. He's somewhere else. Let me take you there. And so he led them to Samaria, verse 20. And as he brought them to, the, uh, to Samaria, he prays, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and here they are inside the capital city surrounded by uh, the Israelites who are, they wish to kill and would probably want to kill them as their enemy, their sworn enemy. And the king of Israel has exactly that reaction, just pure human viewpoint, flesh-oriented, sin-nature uh, response, and he says to Elisha, my father, term of respect for the prophet, shall I kill them? Well, here we have, we've captured them, let's kill them. Notice how how pagan and barbaric he is. They they can't even defend themselves, and he just wants to kill them. They have been, they are prisoners of war, and they have been disarmed, and yet he wants to uh, to slaughter them. And notice Elisha's response. Elisha is going to deal with these enemies of the state in grace. He answers in verse 22. He says, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? I mean, if you've been in a full military conflict and captured uh, soldiers from the enemy and disarmed them, are you then going to kill them? No. So why are you going to kill them now? 
He goes on to say, set food and water before them. Treat them in kindness. Love your enemy. Be gracious to them. Feed them. Feed them well. Don't just give them bread and water. Set food and water before them. They may eat and drink and go to their master. And then verse 23, he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had ate and drank, notice, a great feast, a banquet he sets before them. He is dealing with his enemies in grace and kindness. And then he sent them away to return to their master. So we're told, in conclusion, the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Now, what are we to learn from this? First of all, what was the northern kingdom to learn from this? Well, the message to the northern kingdom from God is that in the same way that these Syrian raiders were enemies of the northern kingdom, Israel was the enemy of God. And just as Elisha demonstrated grace and kindness to these enemies of the nation, so God was constantly reaching out in grace and kindness to the rebellious apostate Jews in the northern kingdom. And God was constantly offering them the opportunity to return to him, and he would fully bless them. That is the message. It is, again, a message of grace that God reaches out to us, not on the basis of who we are and what we do, but on the basis of who he is and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we have these examples of your grace. Grace is such an abstract concept for us at times that it is difficult for us to capture uh, what it really means, the, the, the depth of it, the generosity of it. And yet in these episodes we study, we get these uh, wonderful visual aids of your grace and your kindness. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never responded to your grace by trusting in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. He paid the penalty in full such that the certificate of debt against us was nailed to the cross. So the issue is no longer our sin. The issue is what we think of Jesus Christ. The issue is to trust in Jesus as the one who is our substitute, the one who paid the penalty for us, and that by believing in him, we might have eternal life. This is your opportunity to believe that Jesus died for you to trust in him. And the scripture makes the promise that the instant we believe in Jesus, God, God credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ. He gives us new life. We are what the scripture calls born again or regenerate. We have eternal life. We're justified and we can never lose that salvation. It is ours forever. Father, as believers, that are here, we pray that you would challenge us with your grace, that you are ever reaching out to us, even when we are in rebellion. You have given us a very simple way to recover from our rebellion by confessing or admitting our sins to you, and you freely forgive us because of what Christ did on the cross. If we are still alive, there's still hope, and if there's still hope, there's still a plan, and you can still use us, and we can still serve you and glorify you in our lives and that there is still recovery. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the truths that we have studied today, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.